Thanks for tuning in to us here on Locked on Bruins. We've got a really neat guest for you, but before I get into that, you know sports as this unifying factor. It brings everybody together. We have these shared experiences that are basically like a brotherhood. But for each one of us, we have a personal experience to how we became indoctrinated to our favorite sports teams. Our host, our main man, a Fox Sports radio host in Bernie Frado joins us. And he does a show on Saturday nights, 11 p.m. Pacific time. It is a must-watch. Follow him on Twitter as well, Bernie Fratto. Of all of the the sports teams that he follows and charts out, he has become infatuated with UCLA. And Bernie, how did this come about? Well, I became a UCLA fan, Brian, uh, growing up in Southern California in the 70s. And I, of course, had Michigan roots. I was born there, but my you know high school years and such and college years in California before we located back to Michigan worked for CBS radio and I always got a kick out of the Bruins and their and their gold helmets and powder blue uniforms but what it came together when it really came together was New Year's Day January 76 when the Bruins played Ohio State in the Rose Bowl and no one thought UCLA had a chance by Woody Hayes Head coach Ohio State, Woody Hayes, owned admission. This was his best team ever. They were 11-0. They were ranked number one in the country. And uh, they had Archie Griffin in the backfield, the only two-time Heisman Trophy winner. And they'd already beaten UCLA by three touchdowns earlier in the year at the Coliseum. Back then, the Bruins played their home games at the Coliseum, not the Rose Bowl. Well, UCLA shocked the world that day and beat Ohio State 23-10. to And from that point forward, I became a big UCLA fan. You became a football fan with that. You're also a staunch supporter of the basketball program, going back to the John Wooden days and developing a relationship with one icon related to UCLA and in Dave Myers. Absolutely. So obviously that time period, 1976, that was the first year that Wooden had retired and he had won nine championships under him. And to this day, UCLA is probably considered the gold standard, right? Of all college basketball programs, if you go back throughout history and you're being fair about this, but it's funny how the world works in the circle of life. And I was a fledgling minor league baseball player, even played a winter game once on Salt Hill Field in UCLA, and I was a huge sports fan. And I met Dave Myers in uh, in January of '82. We'd both been hired by the same company, Motorola, and became fast friends. And of course, Dave was uh, an All-American. He was the captain for uh, John Wooden's final championship team in, in 1975. Dave, also part of a trivia question, he was drafted in the 1975 draft by the Los Angeles Lakers, but was traded to the Milwaukee Bucks. It was part of the package that brought Kareem Abdul-Jabbar to the Lakers, so he's a trivia question. Dave and I became very good friends, and he's an interesting man of principle, you know, you're not going to find many players that are going to retire after five years from a lucrative career in the NBA. Retired suddenly in 1980, shocked everybody. He wanted to spend more time with his family and his faith. He was a devout Jehovah's Witness, and a lot of people doubted his sincerity. But Dave stuck to his uh, guns, and he never did return to the NBA. Although, while working with him in the same office. Uh, it did lead to some funny moments. I know that in the spring of 82 when the Lakers were marching toward another championship, uh, one day the phone rang and our secretary, Lori, said, Dave, you got a call. And uh, 
he says, who is it? She said, I don't know, some guy named Jerry Buss. <laughs> well, Buss called our office probably two or three times trying to get Dave to come out of retirement. And, of course, he never did. And it's not hard to find out or figure out why Dave was such a man of principle when you consider the person he played for in John Wooden. And Dave and I became such close friends that in spring day, he promised in a spring day, uh, 1983, we took a drive up to Westwood, and I got to spend an afternoon with Dave and Coach Wooden. What was that afternoon like, getting the chance to meet the legendary John Wooden? Well, first of all, you know, people see pictures of Coach, and, you know, he looks ancient. and he's. But when you meet him in person, he's actually far more physically in, in, impressive. And when he was a, a guard at Purdue uh, back in uh, the late 20s, he was a two, three-time All-American. He was very wiry. He was muscular. He was scrappy, tough, and a, an incredible athlete from, from what I understand. And But to answer your question, uh, the man he became and, of course, developed his famous, you know, uh, pyramid of success and the principles, and he, you know, preached things like self-control and sincerity and, and honor and discipline and faith. And so as the conversation uh, wore on through the afternoon, he told three great stories that I've remembered all these years later because not only were they so impactful, they were, uh, they were you know, within the playbook of his, his principles and the, and the pyramid of success. And what I think a, probably a lot of people don't realize is he's human and he made mistakes too. When he talked about self-control, he married his high school sweetheart now in 1932. And he, um, he'd known her since he was a freshman in high school, but he said, Believe it or not, after 30 days of marriage, we had this big knockdown, dragout fight, and I was so in, I was so upset. I just got in the car and started driving and said, "I'm out of here." And he lit. He was living in Minnesota at the time, and he he literally drove four hours, four hours, and then all of a sudden he he regrouped and said to himself, "Where am I going? <laughs> I don't even know where I'm going." So he turned around, drove back, packed things up, and they remained married for 53 years. And he talks about that self-control and being true to yourself and not overreacting and understanding that life is, you know, about 90% or 10% of what happens and 90% of how you react. But that was a real-life John Wood story, uh, Brian. And you wouldn't think when you look at this dignified guy, uh, you know, this patriarch, that he ever, you know, it seems like he never made a mistake. Well, he did, and he freely admitted that that was one of his biggest ones. A man, like you said, of so much principle, so many books out there, and helps not just sports fans or basketball people, but with his life lessons, it touches all of us outside of the sporting world as well. And what I've heard, Bernie, you've told me, is that he had to deal with one very rebellious Bill Walton. Oh, yes, yes. But long before that, he had to get hired at UCLA. The the Walton story is, is by far my favorite, but this one's even this one's pretty good too, Brian, because in 1948, uh, by now Coach Wood had been coaching 16 years. He'd been at smaller schools like Indiana State, even coached uh, basketball or baseball at Indiana State one year. But he coveted the University of Minnesota job. Brian uh, really wanted him, and his wife wanted to stay in the Midwest. And he applied for the job and interviewed for the job and hadn't got the job was wondering if he was going to get it when UCLA came calling. So he made a trip out west in 1948, interviewed at UCLA, and they offered him the job. And he said, uh, let me think about it. And uh, that was on a Saturday, and he told his wife, I'll give it until Monday. And if I haven't heard from the University of Minnesota by Monday, I'm going to assume they don't want me, and I will take the UCLA job. Um, well, Monday rolled 
Brown, and uh, he hadn't heard from Minnesota. So he took the UCLA job, and he went back home to, you know, regroup and get ready to move out west. And when he was promptly contacted on Tuesday by the University of Minnesota and said, we'd like to offer you the job, he said, well, this was my number one choice, but I never heard from you guys, so I assumed I was no longer in the running. And they said, no, we've had a terrible snowstorm here in Minnesota, and our phone lines have been down for six days. We tried to reach you. We didn't know how, and we couldn't. John Wooden kept to his principle, kept his word, and said, well, I've already, I've already accepted the UCLA job. And him and his wife dearly wanted to stay in the Midwest, and the Minnesota job was clearly his first choice. But again, a man of principle, not just by what he said, also what he did, and therefore, Brian, he became the UCLA coach. And can you imagine had what you know the college basketball landscape would have looked like had he not become a UCLA coach. And if people think that that's what the right thing to do is, well, I can tell you here in Las Vegas in 2016, Chris Beard was hired by UNLV, he accepted the position, and six days later, Texas Tech came calling, and he told uh, UNLV, forget it, went to Texas Tech. <laughs> now, I know there are some, there are other some, you know, in fairness to Chris Beard, there are some other extenuating circumstances here and he did what he believed was right for his family. But be that as it may, John Wooden chose to keep his word, and Chris Beard chose to do what he felt was best for him. So that's another John Wooden story, but you're right. He uh, had to deal with a lot of very interesting idiosyncratic players, and Bill Walton was one of them. Yeah, Bill seemingly was – he's open. He was a hippie. He he liked to to, to test – the the patience of John Wooden and there's a story about one way he wanted to kind of impose his own will on things and, and John Wooden wasn't having it. No, that's very true. So in the fall of '73, uh, just prior to Bill Walton's senior season at UCLA, and they were coming off a national championship, Bill Consensus All-American, one of the best centers in the country, if not the best, a bit of a rebellion, a, re- a rebel, excuse me. Well, he decided to grow this big red beard, spent all summer growing it. And, of course, um, UCLA had a very strict policy, no facial hair. And I know when you and I talked before, you mentioned you'd seen the picture of Dave Myers on the cover of Sports Illustrated shooting the free throw, and as you see, he's clean-shaven. All the Bruins were. Go back and watch all the old films. They never were allowed any facial hair whatsoever. So prior to the season, as Coach Wooden did every season, he would hold a one-on-one meeting with all the players, giving them what their goals were for the year and their objectives and team and individual. And Bill Walton shows up with his big, red, scraggly beard. And uh, they proceed to uh, conduct their meeting, and Coach Wooden never brings up the beard once. (laughs) And Walton keeps waiting for him to comment on it or to ask about it or say something, and he never does. And finally, at at the end of the meeting, Walton says, well, Coach, didn't you notice my new beard? And, and, uh, Coach Wooden says, well, of course I did, William. You always called him William. And he says, well, well, I just want you to know something, Coach. I like this beard. I'm proud of it. I'm going to keep it, and there's nothing you can do about it. And uh, and uh, Coach Wooden says, well, William, I think you should keep it. You are proud of it. You feel very strongly about it. And I've always taught you to be a man of principle and stand up for what you believe in. We'll miss you this year. <laughs> All of a sudden, Walton's jaw dropped. Two hours later at practice, he showed up completely clean-shaven. That was John Wooden. Even the free-spirited Bill Walton 
dare not jeopardize his career and hurt his standing in the eyes of the legendary coach John Wooden. You could not get away with anything with John as the head coach. Well, when we return, how all of the coaches at UCLA after John Wooden have had to try and live up to those unattainable, seemingly, expectations set by Wooden. We'll discuss between Bernie and I how the pressure has been handled and dealt from those coaches trying to live up to, to somewhat of those expectations that, yes, were cemented by Coach Wooden. I look at John Wooden's career, Bernie, and you know all the national championships that he won, and I believe there have been 10 coaches since Wooden at the post at the helm of UCLA basketball, and only Jim Herrick has won a national championship. It, That's right. If I'm not mistaken, Bernie, with all of that success, where would you feel as a coach because taking over for him or, or being a successive coach there at UCLA, because there's got to be a whole lot of pressure and the bar has been raised so high that it's almost impossible to try and replicate or be looked upon as, as, as doing a satisfactory job if you're the head coach at that program after John Wooden. Well, he cast an incredible shadow, even though his last year was 45 years ago and many have followed. Uh, you know, I remember when, um, I want to see it was not Gene Cunningham. I forget who took over. Gene Bartow, excuse me. Yeah, over in yeah, 76. Yeah. I think he even got to the Sweet 16, and, they, you know, they wanted to hang him. Uh, yeah. Look, you know, and I talked to Coach Herrick at a, at a banquet uh, uh, just a couple of years ago. And, of course, he coached that 95 team, but very few people remember that. And since then, Steve Alford tried his hand. And, obviously, now Mick Cronin is going to give it his shot. Uh, you'll never the, – the legend of John Wooden and Pauley Pavilion, well, is a shadow uh, that is cast over the program in perpetuity. But the irony is he didn't want it that way. Wooden was a very sincere, uh, introspective guy. It was never about him. He was always very transparent. Um, he wanted to see himself as a leader, as a teacher and a role model who just happened to coach basketball. And as such, that's why he was so accessible. And he focused on people. He made it about his people, not about him. And those were sincere things. And as a matter of fact, Dave Myers, uh, in 1995, uh, when he was had moved on to a teaching career in Temecula, he um, was contacted by the Daily Bruin and the L.A. Times and every major media outlet. It was the 20-year anniversary of the 1975 Coach Wooden team last year, Dave's senior year. He was captain, All-American. And they wanted to do an anthology about the 20-year anniversary. And Dave just says, I'm going to pass. Because I know we live in a country that is infatuated with anniversaries, but this is not about me. This is not about my team. This is your time. This is your team. He was put off by that. So the bottom line is that that came from John Wooden. So to your point, although there are obviously a shadow that has been cast over the entire UCLA program and Pauley Pavilion, it's not the way Coach Wooden would have wanted it. Which I think the fan base needs to realize because I feel like they have these unrealistic expectations at times and they go back into the past and people wonder, well, why aren't we getting back to those days? We were spoiled by what John Wooden did and it's almost, would you say, Bernie, close to impossible to ever see a coach anywhere 
do something like what he did, like, are you firmly confident to say that that will never happen again, what John Wooden did at UCLA, that any other coach could never do at any other program? Yeah, well, I don't think, uh, Brian, anybody could ever win nine in a row uh, like Coach Wooden did. You know, you know, it's only been two in a row a couple of times. And part of the reason there are other nuances here. you got one-and-done players and such, and we're in a different society. But I think in more of a general broad-based answer to your question, we're in a different world. Uh, 30, 40 years ago, if a coach told a player to run through a wall, he did it. If you tell a kid to run through a wall now, he's going to say, why? And part of it is because leadership has failed, too, in, in, in our politicians and in, in our patriarchal leaders, whether they be coaches, managers, heads of industry. Uh, they've not always led by a great example. But for that, for, for, for what the result that wouldn't got could it be possible again to at least come close to that in terms of the competitive nature where you are in the hunt every year? And some coaches do that. And I think John Calipari takes a bad rap, and I think Mike Krzyzewski takes a bad rap, and I think Nick Saban takes a bad rap, and Bill Belichick. But the truth of the matter is they employ a couple of the same things that John Wooden had. He, they take what talent they have, and they fit the game to the players around them rather than the converse, okay? and then. You do your best to develop them as people and then athletes. So there were, Wooden could take a kid who knew his ceiling was up here, but right now he was down here, and get him to that ceiling. And he would systemically work with an entire team to adapt to what they could do best versus what he wanted. So, again, we're back to dealing with people. We're back to dealing with, uh, you know, individuals rather than, uh, you know, dictating what you want from a top-down situation. So John Wooden was bringing at those things, and he was way ahead of his time. Bernie Frado joining us. You can follow him on, on Twitter, at Bernie Frado. You, you kind of followed up and, and kind of led me into my last question here, Bernie, and that was, what would a John Wooden coach team look like in this generation because of how maybe needy players are and there's the whole ego thing and it's I want to satisfy my needs there's you said the one and dunners there's a whole lot more pressure on, on the players to to try to get what they want and it's less of uh, deference or reverence to the coach I feel like in this new generation like you said it's when a coach asks you to do something it's not that you just do it it's asking why and I, I wonder, I just picture, Bernie, how in the generation that we are in with kids the way they are, they are these days and the millennials and the generation Zers or Xers or whatever you call them, how they would respond to that discipline that John Wooden perpetrated and that was his calling card because I feel like there would be some backlash, unfortunately, based upon the changing times, but I hope I'm wrong. Well, here's the situation. Uh, first of all, um, Wooden, again, he won 10 national championships. No one's going to come close to that. But he's also written a dozen leadership books, or he's been part of a dozen leadership books based on his teachings, right? And when you talk about people who have actually quoted Wooden and want to be like Wooden, Tom Coughlin, Nick Saban, even Rick Pitino, Vince Lombardi, all of them were very much uh, disciples of Wooden in the sense that they believed in the three uh, basic uh, what I would consider to be uh, characteristics of great coaches. And by the way, before I tell you what those are, I think 
having thought about this, the guy that I think does it the closest right now is Tony Bennett in Virginia. A man of faith, uh, very uh, understated. Uh, he's the only player, he's, he's the only coach to not only lose to a number one, a number 16 seed is a number one seed. They got killed by 20, but it brought great humility. And he talked about how good can come out of that. And what do they do? They come right back next year, win the national championship. But Tony Bennett, I think, employs a lot of the same principles that John Wooden did. He gets his people to buy in. Uh, athletes have to work at things and do things they don't want to do. And coaches must convince pe- people why they should do things that they don't want to do because that belief within them uh, has to be fired up that they'll do it because it'll help them get there where they want to get. One of the things that made John Wooden such a successful basketball coach was to get even the non-starters to get them to perform well, and it wasn't just about the five starters. He believed everybody made a contribution, and he got players to buy into that, right? He also got, you know, and, and let's face it, great coaches have to believe in themselves too. Right. Yeah. If you're going to win, if you're going to win people over with your way of thinking and convince them they can do things they didn't believe possible, you have to believe it yourself. Tony LaRussa has talked about, uh, copying a lot of John Wooden's, uh, mannerisms and his players will, t- will tell you they never really saw him rattled. You could never tell by looking in the dugout if LaRussa was up by eight runs or, or down by 10 runs. And, and LaRussa basically said, you know, his job was to keep his staff around him. At, at the highest level, no matter what was facing, or no matter what he was up against, you got to remain undeterred. You got to stay in faith, and even though you, you might not feel like it, your team is looking to you for that leadership. So you got to start with that belief in yourselves. But you can't be so stubborn that you don't see, seek opposing ideas. Wooden had hard and fast rules, like I told you about with Walton, but he wasn't a dictator. Dictators like to surround themselves with yes men, but great leaders like a John Wooden would surround himself with people who have differing opinions. So, you know, much like Nick Saban and even Coach Bill Belichick, they talk about the, the, the role their fathers played. They talk about, and even Irvin Meyer, they talk about the role their assistants play. And John Wooden very much relied on them. So if you add all of that up, you know, I think Tony Bennett comes the closest to it right now. Is it possible? Yes, but I just think in today's society, it's incredibly rare. I, and you alluded to this, Bernie, and I I find the most rewarding thing about a coach is when you can get a player to do something, a a skill, a talent that they, he, he or she did not ever imagine that they could accomplish. I find that that might be the most fulfilling thing. When they come to you and they have these self, uh, feelings of how they they need to be as a player where they stand and a coach totally goes beyond that that person's perceptions of their game then they they get them to become someone that they're a star when they had no inclination to feeling that they could be a star I feel like that is so rewarding speaking of stars Bernie Fratto is certainly one on Fox Sports Radio a national host please check out his show for all sorts of good stuff there it is 11 p.m. Pacific time on Saturdays does a great job with the straight out of Vegas crew you can follow him on Twitter at Bernie Fratto he is a historian an all-around great guy a man of great wit and we are very privileged and blessed to have him on this episode of Locked on Bruins Bernie Fratto thank Thank you for carving out some time in your busy day and chatting brewing lore with us. Hey, good to be with you, Brian, and we'll see you Saturday night. You're part of the show, too. 11 p.m. Pacific, 2 a.m. Eastern, Saturday night, straight out of Vegas, Fox Sports Radio, Sirius XM Channel 83, 
iHeartRadio, check your local affiliate. You got it. We will all be tuned in. And yes, it's a blast to be able to work with Bernie. We'll talk with Bernie soon. And Bernie, thanks again. All right, Brian, thanks so much for having me. Hope you enjoyed my one-on-one conversation with a Fox Sports Radio colleague and Bernie Fratto. He is on Twitter, at Bernie Fratto. I am on Twitter, Brian Fenley, Brian with a Y, F-E-N-L-E-Y. Be sure to subscribe to this show. Tomorrow on the program, we've got current NBA player, former UCLA Bruin, TJ Leaf. You're not going to want to miss my one-on-one chat with the ex-UCLA star. That is coming up tomorrow. And then Friday, Keyshawn Lucier-South, the Bruin football player who was such a powerful force on the Bruins, will join us and discuss what it's like now for him preparing for the NFL draft. This is Locked on Bruins. I'm Brian Fenley.